Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from Cat Swamp Road, coming to you today. And I want to thank you so much for spending the next, whatever it may be, hour or so with me. I greatly, greatly appreciate that. And hopefully everything is going well for you. And if it's not the best of days, well, God willing, I'm sure tomorrow will be a lot better. But, you know, in life, history is a wonderful thing. And sadly, in this country, and not only in this country, but that's what I'm concerned with, but the world, we want to, for some reason, uh, rewrite history or eliminate it or whatever. And then, you know, some people, uh, there's a certain mindset that goes around that thinks that the history that's in the history books is not accurate. And uh, so who knows? But anyway, what's wonderful about history is that it gives you an understanding of something, how, where we were, and where we are right now. And then it also gives you the ability to to set a trajectory, right? Like a surveyor closing the lines on a uh, survey plot. You know, anybody who has a older farm or older piece of land specifically here in the northeast there may be in other parts of the country but i haven't seen i've never seen any deeds from any place else but here on the farm in warren county and remember new jersey is one of the colonial states so it's very so it's very old it's not a newer territory like montana or alaska or or uh, wyoming that when you look at your deed on the deed here to the farm, because it was written many, 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 many years ago, is that it's all measured in chains and links, and then it gives you an identifier, a qualifier, and it'll say, okay, uh, I don't remember exactly what our deed says, but it's not far off of this. All right, so uh, the over to the corner where uh, Mr. So-and-so buried, uh, buried his dog red. And then over there to the, to the apple tree that, uh, uh, that did this, or the stone wall over there. So there's all of these visual, visual uh, identifiers of where the property lines are. And then when you get it surveyed, and we haven't had it surveyed for, for many, many years, but we had to survey off my charlotte and my two acres off the farm just so it could be deeded separately with our house and when we went to the township for the um for the approval and the building permit it wasn't part of the farm it was so but to you riding by or, or whatever you would never know that it's not part of the farm that it's a separate deed so and that's that's good but anyway so when we had to, so when we had to do that what'll uh get Get, the, get our two acres surveyed off the farm, but then they have to go onto the farm and take the uh, the uh, shoot the distances back and what have you. So it's very common. And when we got the title guarantee insurance a number of years ago on the farm, it's very common for them to to extrapolate out the line and and close the line. They have a a saying for it, and I'm not a surveyor, but they have a saying for it and. Uh, 
And the, I think on the map they make a dotted line or a dashed line or something, and they're saying based upon this. And I'm, if anybody who is a surveyor out there, and I'm saying it incorrectly, please contact me at hotrodfarmer@farmmachinerydigest.com. But that's how it was explained to us, and I was a little kid at the time. Well, not when I built my house, I wasn't a little kid. But when we got the title guarantee and did different things on the farm, is that they extrapolate out and they mark it somehow on the survey. Say based upon this point and this point and this point, this should be the third point or the fourth point, and they close off the property line. So, you know, that goes back to the history of one's farm. And in life, if you have history, then you know, uh, you understand the potential or the way something normally behaves. And why I'm telling you all of this is because I'm having, it's not an issue, but something is behaving differently on my little Ford Fiesta. And uh, we'll turn the clock back quickly, uh, back at the, probably towards the end of the summer, maybe August, well, it's not, August is not the end, sometime, I guess, in August, I, I serviced my air conditioner on the car, discharged it, uh, evacuated it, pulled the vacuum and filled it up with the proper amount of Freon, and it works beautifully, frees you out, everything it was starting to uh, get a little bit, uh, it was starting to ice up because it was it got low on freon over the years since the last time it was done and it was normal leakage there's no leakage in the system pull the vacuum on it shut everything off for a half hour there's no leakage so it's just a normal weeping through the seals and through everything from two hundred thousand miles now right now i have just under i well 223,000 miles so and talk about you know years ago in the cowboy days they used to say that that's a, a one uh, a one-man horse that that horse would only allow a one man to ride him and uh this is a one that my fiesta is a one-man car no one else has driven it since it came from the factory or the dealership when they when they were prepping it and or the truck driver who took it off no one else has driven it since then other than me charlotte has never even driven it she never wanted to drive it so anyway the thing is, I, and after 225,000 miles, let's say, arguably, I have a lot of history, right? So I could, con- I could just like a surveyor, I could connect the, the dots and I could close the line and put things, you know, put things together or something that happens in my mind. Say, oh, I know it does that or I know it does this. And, and I'm making it up because it really doesn't do anything. Uh, sometimes with the, the dual clutch transmission, and I really don't experience that much, but it's not an automatic transmission. It's a manual transmission that shifts by itself, which is completely different because it uses solenoids and forks in there to shift, whereas an automatic transmission uses hydraulic pressure to apply clutches. So it's a dual clutch transmission. And I just know that if you you could do some things to it and the way you, let's say if you, you're, you're creeping through a parking lot and then you get out of the throttle, get in and it may be, it may jerk a little bit or if, you try, if you're from pulling into the garage very, very slowly because it basically is a manual transmission. I'm not giving enough throttle or buckle, but like a, like a manual transmission if you let the clutch out and you don't have enough RPM. But like I said, that's, that's not an issue. It's not a problem. And uh, I could evoke it or I could not evoke it depending upon my driving style it's not a problem whatsoever excuse me so getting back to i have history with the vehicle and 
you know, and I'm going to break away for a minute because otherwise it's not going to make any sense. And that's why it's so uh, you guys are used to that, used to me going off on a tangent and coming back in. But, you know, years ago, and that was one of the reasons why I started, you know, the Idle Chatter podcast, my website, farmmachinerydigest.com, and then ultimately the radio show, but I was not the impetus for the radio show, as I told you before. It was by God's grace, SiriusXM reached out to me because they were listening to Idle Chatter. But it's made in the same vein if you happen to listen to the to Farm Machinery Digest also, radio also. It's just that it's a shorter version because the radio show has a, a very strict time element. So, in essence... One of the things why, well, the reason why, not one of the things, the reason why I started is to have an, to have a transfer of knowledge and about farm equipment, about machinery, about engines, about diesel engines, hydraulic systems, what have you. And sadly today in this, in the world, from my perspective, there was like a zero transfer of knowledge. I mean, years ago, 30, 40 years ago, if you wanted to learn something, and I'm talking about in the trades, like learning about engines, learning about a new a, a new vehicle that comes out or a new piece of farm equipment, there were plenty of opportunities for you to go learn. I used to go up to the General Motors Training Center, the Ford Training Center, the Chrysler Training Center. The Chrysler Training Center, excuse me, was the most Mickey Mouse of them. Uh, the, the General Motors one was <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, that place was just fantastic. And the Ford one was very good, but it also shared the building with the uh, parts warehouse. So the training center part was very, very nice. But the, the GM training center was, that. I mean, that was the gold standard up in Terrytown, New York, and right by the Tappan Zee Bridge. So anyway, there was if you wanted to learn, you could learn. And I remember that uh, taking an air conditioning class, and Mr. Hip, I've spoken about him many times on this show, God rest his soul, and then he explained how, and this was, you know, 35, 40 years ago, this wasn't yesterday, this is not my first rodeo, I'm not uh, 15 years old, so, it was, um, but I was a young kid when I went there, and he explained at the time how, and the new, the new GM cars at that time, all right, so... <laughs> They're not new anymore, they're antiques. But uh, how they, when you put the air conditioner, when you put the defroster on, that it would evoke the air conditioner, even in the middle of the winter, it would cycle the air conditioner compressor on and off so that it would use the defroster to take the humidity out of the air. So if you had the heater on, the air conditioner would not cycle. And if you had the defroster on, regardless of what you had the temperature setting, because it was a blend air system that would then use a heat control valve, is that it would cycle the defroster on and off because it felt that if you, the logic was that if you have the defroster on, there's high humidity in the air and has a, will have a propensity to fog up. So it's using the the, so in essence, it was using two different, what we'd say in engineering degrees of freedom to defrost the windows. It was using the heat, the higher temperature, and it was also using the uh, the removal of the humidity through the air conditioner. As I hit the headphone set. So anyway, so I, I and I've taught that to a, over the years and imparated that and that knowledge that Mr. Hip had, had conveyed to the class, whether anybody else remembered it, I don't know, but I certainly did. So now fast forward to what does that have to do with my escort? My escort, my fiesta. Anyway, I still call it an escort. So anyway, 
so what happened was that I have history, right? 225,000 miles of history with this car driving it all over the country, every, every place. And now that it's gotten colder, and I'm doing more around town driving, not that I didn't use it before around town. I'm not, I, mean, I went to Hackenstein, when I went to the bank, went to the post office, went to the supermarket with it. I mean, so it's not like it's never, never been around town. That I noticed that when I have the heater on, not the defroster, the heater, so it's, so it's blowing out of the floor duct. When I have the heater on, now it's evoking the air conditioner compressor. So I could feel the air conditioner compressor cycle on and then cycle off. The the engine idles fine, but you could hear, you could you could feel the you could feel it. You know what it feels like, and uh, and you could feel. And what I have, to, but everything is working beautifully. The discharge temperature is beautiful from the heated ducts. You fry eggs with it, all right? The direction of the discharge air is is correct. It's not like I said, well, I have it on the heater and it's blowing on the defroster, and that's why it thinks that it uh, should cycle the air conditioner compressor. But, you know, you can't find out anything today. And if you talk to somebody, I know some people who work in Ford deals, and they're good mechanics, but they are... They, they're not exposed to, the, and it's not just Ford, it's everybody. They're not exposed to the training. And years ago, as I said, is that if you wanted to learn, there was a, a many, many opportunities for you to learn. Sadly, today, what the, what the, I don't care whether it's John Deere, whether it's Ford, whether it's Toyota, whether it's uh, uh, Whirlpool washing machines, they want to make the mechanic into like a guy on the assembly line. You put this part in, you don't know what the heck it is, what it does. When the computer tells you to do this, you change this part. That's basically it. And so I am on this quest now because two things, and I'm wasting your time with this because it's something that I'm going to talk about uh, a little bit, not like Fiesta, but as a, as a learning experience, right, as a representation, as a... Uh, as something that I could say a, a testament to a, to to a learning experience, how you need to pay attention to your equipment. So now the thing is that what is what changed with my Fiesta? Is there a component that is that is on the that is on the way out, starting to fail? I can't identify what I would think that would be. The air conditioner has work, worked properly ever since I charged it. I mean, not charged, it's serviced it, I'll say, because the charge, evo- charge implies that all I did was put refrigerant in it, right? I think it's all 134A on that one, if I remember, or that other one. Uh, no, 134A. I, so anyway, uh, so but something changed. And if this would have happened early on, let's say I bought the car used, then... I would not, I'd say, oh, that's what it does. I don't understand why it does it. And uh, so something has changed. Interestingly enough that uh, I haven't been able to glean that it's doing that on the highway. But to tell you the truth, at higher speeds, I never really was able to glean that the air conditioner compressor was cycling either. So I guess, uh, and it's very hard to get to the compressor. So you can't just like say you're going to put a test light in series and tape it to the windshield and go for a ride. And uh, try, to, but I have to try to figure out. So if any of you listening have any any information on that, but something definitely changed. So now something changed. Either it was was not right for two hundred thousand miles, and now it somehow miraculously healed itself. 
after I service the air conditioner, which I don't see any connection whatsoever with that, specifically since we did not, and that was months ago, it was in August, it's going to be February when you're listening to this, and we didn't, I mean, to serve, I hooked up the machine, it was just a high side and low side, hoses didn't touch anything, so it's not like you touched anything, it wasn't under the dashboard, it wasn't any place, but it definitely changed, because I pulled in for breakfast last week, I said, it was cold, obviously it's cold, it's winter, I had the heater on, I said, the air conditioning compressor just cycled on. They said, what the, and I said, oh, maybe I have it under frost. So I took the switch and I put it back to, I shut it off and then let it let it cycle and then put it back on and it did the same thing. So so either it was never right before, and which I kind of doubt, or something is changing. And what the something is, I have no idea. And that's why it's so important to have history with things and understand things. And in life, you can't always have history with it because it may be a piece of equipment that you've never seen before, never had before. If you work in somebody else's equipment, and then, then you don't... Uh, you don't have that history and know whether it does it but and then you look in the owner's manual forget about it i mean years ago the old owner's manuals right used to say oh the air, the, the air conditioner will cycle during the the, the frost cycle i mean the frost uh, on the frost cycle even in the winter to take the humidity i have like 17 more than 17 pages i get so there's so many pages in this owner's manual and not as not as bad as a lot of them I've seen because I actually had the one for the Silverado, uh, Silverado High Country. The thing was 600, 596 pages long. And then the new models, they don't even give you an owner's manual. They, give, they tell you to go and download it on a CD or something. It's crazy. But, but there's more pages in this owner's manual for my little junky Fiesta. I'm saying Mickey, it's well, not junky, it's a great car, but you know what I'm saying? It's not a high-end car. Right, little Fiesta, the cheapest Ford you could buy. About the radio, and I still don't understand. I still don't know half the icons on the damn radio because it's just forget about it. But something that's important, you can't find that. That's not in there. So, uh, so that is. So, if anybody could share any any information on that, I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. And what we're going to be talking about today, eighteen minutes into the show. What we're going to be talking about today, uh, the kittens are meowing outside the door. I'm going to have to ignore them. And Faith hurt her leg. Well, I don't know, something happened to Faith's leg last night. Uh, she came in with a limp, and she has some fur missing. I, it's undecided, but it looked like something bitter, or she got it caught in something. I don't know, but um, she's feeling a little bit better today. But last night, she was uh, in some pain with that leg, and we'll have to see how. It's not broken or anything. I could hold her, but... Uh, so these these cats are these country cats these farm cats are always into something i remember when i had my first set of chickens they called them the cadets or the cadet i never pluralized it even though they were there were six of them because they were like one unit like a squadron what one did the other one did and uh, they used to go up into the woods but they would never come back as a squadron it was like missing man formation it always had to be a couple of them missing and come back an hour later and this one, the one cadet, I remember, I'm outside sitting in the garage waiting for him to come back. It was summertime. One comes back, two comes back, three comes, there were six of them. And uh, she's coming back and I'm seeing her walk, walk out of the woods onto the driveway. We have a concrete driveway and I see blood. I said, what, what did I run to go see what's happening? Her one toe was completely gone on her foot. I don't know what, it almost looked like a snapping turtle snapped it off. 
I mean, I, I, I have no basis for that whatsoever. So she's bleeding, and I'm so I'm taking a uh, taking a towel. I'm holding it and holding it, holding it, holding it, and say, "Oh my God, what am I going to do?" I don't know even if the vet could do anything. She's going to bleed out in front of me. I said a prayer, and then the, I was holding the compress on, and they were wonderful. I mean, you could hold them on your lap. You could do whatever you want, and and uh, with them, they were like puppy dogs, and uh, and. Um, I held it for a couple of minutes, and by God's grace, it stopped bleeding. I said, okay, and uh, I don't know what, what I can do with her. And so I said to Charlotte, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe it'll start to bleed at night, and she'll, she'll bleed out and die. I, I don't know what to do. Well, the next morning, thank God, three, one toe missing, completely chopped off, like on a guillotine, where it went, I have no idea. She's digging with that foot, and she lived for years afterwards. So the thing basically is is that uh, you know it's good to have some history with things and to uh, understand what is happening. But I don't know what happened to uh, to Fate's rear paw, rear leg. Uh, but God, I'm sure she will be fine, God willing. And uh, but that's it. So we will see what the saga continues with these animals. But anyway, so. What I'm going to talk about today is something that I feel is very important, and it's based upon history. What I was what I was talking about the first twenty minutes is that I think it's well time that the industry, that the community, really had somebody, and that's some way today. Somebody today is going to be me. Lay out a lineage, a timeline. All right, of engine management systems and where did we come from and how did we get to where we are today and um and my father used to have a saying that if you know what the battle is about you could win the war and the thing is that i feel it's very important that we don't erase that history that if you're working on a newer vehicle, a newer truck, a new piece of farm equipment, a new sprayer or combine, what have you, how do we get here? All right, how do we get to to these, these electronic controls and engine controls? I'm not going to talk about like the header control on a combine, but there's going to be a lineage for that also. There's going to be a timeline, but we're going to start today with the engine controls because the engine controls were the first frontier for... There was the Wild West, the first frontier for the integration of a microprocessor and some sort of control logic on an engine. And then that has migrated into semi-trucks, farm equipment, UTVs, irrigation pumps, you name it, anything. is almost every engine today other than on a lawnmower and the, uh, you know, when I used to say on a chainsaw, but then... There was a listener that, that uh, back, I think, last year that corrected me that steel actually has a fuel-injected chainsaw. So if it has a fuel-injected, if that's a fuel-injected chainsaw, then that means it has some sort of control system on it. It has some sort of controller. And I know that there's fuel-injected lawn tractors, zero-turn motors, there's fuel-injected everything, because that used to be my, like, my, oh, oh no fuel-injected chainsaws, and he rightfully, and I, sadly, and respectfully, sir, I don't remember your name, but I remember you sharing that that information with me, and I greatly appreciate that. 
So how do we get here? What's our history with engine management? So I'm going to make this a very concise timeline that it's going to uh, give you some understanding of where we went, where, where we were, where we came from, and where we're going. And this way, because the because the farm is so eclectic, you may have an old throttle body pickup truck on the farm. You may have a um, a tier well a tier four diesel on your farm. You may have something in between. You may have you may have an old vehicle with a feedback carburetor on it, right? And you may have an old engineer with the electronic ignition and a carburetor. And you may have an engine with breaker points, and you may have a diesel with just a pump line nozzle, a fuel injection system. So we really need to have some lineage lists. I feel that it's going to bring a lot of clarity to you moving forward. And as always, don't be afraid to please. Don't be afraid. I welcome the opportunity to con- to uh, communicate with you. Then it's Hot Rod Farmer at FarmMachineryDigest.com. And then I've been meaning to do this, and I get involved with the show, and my mind wanders. So I have to make myself some crimp, some cheat notes. Is that I need? I I mean, I'm firing up that contest again for the free Hot Rod Farmer license plate. And what I want you to do, or I'm going to ask you to do, if you want to get into that contest is just go to my website and fill out the form and the reason for me to do this night the past month or two i haven't been talking about it is that uh i want to know where you listen from so i could put a, a pin in my map and if i put the pin in my map then i could have a better idea to of the challenges machinery challenges you would have in that part of the country or even the world, because we have listeners. I checked it today. My website says 90, but we're up to 97. So God willing, I hit 101. I would like to hit 101, and then I could have stop bothering Sue Moore to change that on the website and just say over 100 listeners in over 100 countries and stop counting at that particular point. So, all right, let's talk about the lineage and the timeline of engine management systems. And so all of this started in the auto industry, and the impetus for this was emission controls, and then to reduce emissions from an engine, and then also after the uh, energy crisis back 73, 74, and then the EPA, the EPA wasn't didn't exist then as far as the auto, I don't know if there was an EPA any place else I don't even think it existed whatsoever but as far as the automobile industry was concerned and so they came out with a few, eventually came out with fuel economy standards and emission standards so this was actually a conflicting goal because the car industry knew how to get uh, they could get clean, cleaner emissions. I'm not going to say clean, cleaner emissions, but it was done at the penalty of fuel economy. And if anybody remembers, or you had, a, or have a car from the, probably from 1974 was probably the worst. And uh, there was a lot of dynamics that came up in 74. Is that the, the emission control strategy or the, the maximum emissions that were acceptable by the government? Uh, we got reduced drastically from 73 to 74 so there was a number of things going on there and then 75 it got actually a little bit better with the as far as performance is concerned 
or with the advent of the catalytic converter. So basically, this was all driven by government standards. And though I am a complete right-wing conservative, I cannot honestly say that every government standard is bad. Probably we all we all uh, moan and groan when they put those standards on us. But when the when this when the bell rings at the end of the day, not every government standard is bad. Uh, it's just that societally we don't like, and we're Americans, so we don't like to have the government force anything on us. But the reality being is that the air is much cleaner than it used to be, uh, and the engines that we're producing today have a lot more power, unbelievable power from small engines, unbelievable fuel economy, and back years ago this was not able to be obtained um it would have been up been able to been obtained if they didn't have to meet those conflicting goals of fuel economy and a reduction in emissions so in essence when you look at emissions on an engine and this is important because it is part of why engine management came about is that the the emissions there's nothing an engine management system is going to do you know fuel injection tf4 diesel what have you to actually eliminate the emissions what it's going to do it's going to try to control or it's going to manage i'll say is a better word it's going to manage the into some level the combustion the combustion process in the engine because the combustion process in the engine is where the rubber meets the road that's the seed to soil contact that's where the emissions are formed and i don't care whether it's gasoline or diesel whether it's a one cylinder lawnmower engine or a, or a 12 cylinder in a, in a in a mississippi riverboat it makes no difference so the if you shut the engine off it's not going to have any emissions right there's no combustion the engine's not running so it's trying to manage the combustion event but if you turn the clock back because this is a timeline and you look at one of and the one of the major problems i shouldn't say problem one of the major faux pas is probably a better word a faux pas was that prior to these government standards prior to the, the the concern for fuel economy what have you is that the car manufacturers specifically and you know how patriotic i am and uh specifically the american car manufacturers really did not give any concern to that whatsoever now if you look a lot of the foreign car manufacturers did all right the japanese did uh the germans did i mean there were other cars french and everything back then english cars but they kind of they never sold too well so the big importers were the jap were the big foreign car countries that the big foreign car invasion came from was japan and germany so now you could very easily misunderstand this statement right because you say oh you see they're better cars or they're better engineers or those companies are so good and american companies don't care that's what the liberals just oh they just want to pollute everything and toyota loves the and honda loves the planet well that's a bunch of malarkey all right what happened was that america was the last frontier when i say america i'll say north include north america canada but america was the last frontier for those brands to make a a 
to take a foothold in it to sell their vehicles. So they sold their vehicles. So if you look at the Japanese manufacturers and you look at the German manufacturers, but specifically the Japanese manufacturers, they sold their vehicles first in Japan and they went to the rest of the world and America was the last frontier for them to come. And then if you look at Volkswagen, right, and then everybody else followed BMW, Mercedes, there was NSU, if you somebody could remember those, there was Opel, but that was owned by General Motors. And uh, so what happened was that they, they were not as aggressive and they stayed more or less in Europe, but the Japanese wanted to go around the world and conquer the world. And so why is that important? It's important because other than in North America, specifically the United States, because Canada was always a little bit more expensive, is that fuel was extremely cheap. So so the idea that those companies, specifically the Japanese, were positioned perfectly, perfectly to take advantage of cars that had a very good fuel economy compared to American cars. Not that they were better cars, not that they were engineered better, but their focus was on fuel economy because they were selling these cars to countries and around the world where gasoline was 3 $4 a gallon 40 years ago. So they were very concerned with fuel economy. Like I said, not because they were benevolent, is because they wanted to sell into that marketplace. So just like somebody who wants to, uh, to like we raise non-GMO pesticide-free sweet corn. So that's a niche that we have that people come to us. I'm not against GMOs. I'm not against pesticides. I'm not against anything, all right? But we raise, so the guy down the road who's raising sweet corn, he's raising a GMO corn. I don't think he's the devil. He's raising what works for him. We're raising what works for us. So what happened is there was a false perception by the American public that these companies whatever they put a halo around them that they didn't rightfully deserve they because nobody was going to buy a car in japan and they also tax in, in other places around the world they taxed you on horsepower they taxed you on weight they the government would tax you on different things plus the gasoline was so expensive and the other thing that comes into play is that america and canada are huge countries and even though you could say uh well, they're huge countries, and they and they are, were predominantly rural, but they were developed enough, in my estimation, to have a road network. So somebody in Montana could go and drive, has to drive fifty or sixty, or Saskatchewan or Texas, a hundred miles, or eighty miles, sixty miles to go to the supermarket. This was unheard of any place else in the world. And then even like in South America, we had a country like Brazil that is a large geographic footprint, all right? And uh, they, once you got out, it was like the outback in Australia, there was nobody out there. So so America, America and Canada, and specifically, I keep repeating it, America, was very, very unique to the world. So the, the domestic car manufacturers were concerned with somebody getting on, in, they, were, they were not concerned with fuel economy, they were not, to a certain extent, uh, they were not concerned with emissions, and neither were the Japanese or the Germans were concerned with fuel economy emissions, they were concerned with fuel economy because that was what they needed to have to sell a car in Italy when it was $6 a gallon gas back in 1970. 75 all right so they so that's what and they went but they had no concern with emissions whatsoever nothing zippo all right so now what happens is that to get back online in my talk is that the american the the mistake that the american car manufacturers did 
they did not update their engine designs. So the com- remember we said the combustion the, the combustion event is what is creating emissions. So they did not. So they I'm not going to say they never came out with a new song. They had a newer combustion chamber. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But the emphasis was really not. They weren't looking at emissions or fuel economy. All right. And then all of a sudden, I'll say metaphorically out of the blue, the government slaps this on them. It wasn't out of the blue and saying, well, you have to do this tomorrow, right? But they had a couple of years notice. But what they did is, I guess, the bean counters came into play. And it wasn't that the engineers that Ford and General Motors and Chrysler and AMC at the time didn't know what they were talking about, what they were doing, is that they had two choices, all right? So the, the choices were either try to manage this combustion event better, to clean up the tailpipe emissions and also to increase fuel economy or redesign the engine and and it doesn't necessarily need to be the crankshaft but it would be the piston the combustion chamber the cylinder that had the intake manifold and all of that so the thing is that the decision was the decision was made collectively excuse me by detroit incorporated this wasn't like they all got together in some meeting hall and said okay this is what we're all going to do but they all made the decision and i have to say that it was bean counter uh bean counter driven driven and said okay it's going to cost us x amount of dollars to try to control this and it's going to cost us y amount of dollars to have a clean slate engine or relatively clean set engine try to because remember whenever you have any type of emission control whether it's an engine management system in the early days a catalytic converter an egr valve you well not so much egr but uh on the understand in a minute because the thing is that you are trying to clean up what you could not what what you could not clean up in the combustion chamber so just like in agriculture is that if you could if you could keep the weeds down with a pre-emerge and then the crop canopy stops the weeds from germinating and coming up then you don't have to go back in and try to deal with and control those weeds if for instance on my farm when our soil was all messed up i was thinking about buying a rotary hoe that's a rescue tool a rescue implement but once i got my base saturation magnesium calcium magnesium ratio correct and my soil is not crusting over and i don't need a rotary hoe so i would have bought a rotary hoe and i would never used it right or hardly ever used it so anyway so the thing is that if you clean up the emissions in the combustion chamber then there is less for you to clean up afterwards so what they basically ended up doing and and the whole industry was like this so it wasn't just if you look at any car from 74 75 whether it was a toyota corolla or corona they had a corona back then right or it was a buick or a plymouth it was a maze of vacuum hoses and everything underneath the hood and what have you all these switches and timers and i mean they weren't timers like a clock timer but they had these okay we're gonna wait two seconds and put the egr on so it was a it was a maze of different things and then actually to their credit in 1975 i think 76 was i think it was came out in 70 what came out in 74 75 was that honda came out with the cc cvcc engine controlled vortex combustion chamber and that engine uh had it was designed from and to, to honda's credit 
all right it was designed as a clean slate engine to tackle the upcoming laws in the united states as far as the fuel economy was concerned and emissions were concerned so what they looked to do with this controlled vortex combustion chamber was what i just said to make it as clean as it is impossible so you needed very little aftercare after treatment right and they actually bragged in 75 when the car industry went to all for most part went to all catalytic converters that they did not need a catalytic converter because they had this cvcc engine design and um and it was uh, it was uh, it was i mean <laughs> i mean it pains me to say it but as an engineer you guys say it was a good engine I mean, it was a good design all right uh i'm not saying it was a good design necessarily as far as reliability was concerned i don't think it was any more reliable any less reliable than any anybody else's products but as far as they took the proper approach and, and to my way of thinking is that they were the only ones that took the proper approach all right and they were coming out with a new car the civic and they wanted and they 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 made the right decision whereas the whole other rest of the industry and the thing basically also what came into play was that the domestic industry because you have to remember the the the, the domestic auto industry ford general motors chrysler amc had no interest took no interest whatsoever in selling what we produced here around the globe the 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 market was dynamic enough in north america we sold enough in north everybody was making money they were they were you know fat and happy everybody was fat and happy the guys in the assembly lines are making money the truck drivers delivering cars to make money the corporations are making money everybody worked there was fantastic it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful wonderful time and whereas the japanese manufacturers because japan itself is a small country so they recognized early on that they had to go beyond their borders all right because they need to amortize the cost of the vehicle all right whatever they were making a a datsun 1200 all right that they couldn't sell enough of them in japan alone to be able to uh to get the cost down enough and to pay for having a factory and the engineering would have even if it was simple with breaker points whereas the domestic car industry did not care about that we were north american based we that's all we wanted to sell united states and canada the plants were going day and night and everything was wonderful all right so in essence what it what had happened was that they decided to end as i was starting to get off i got myself off on a tangent excuse me is that these are big i mean the united states is huge canada is huge i mean we, we put a lot of miles on we have a lot of distance especially in the rural parts of those countries of those those states and provinces in canada is that they're big they're huge travel long distance americans think nothing of getting in a car and going down to florida or going to california they did nothing of it right and same thing with canadians they had they, they thought nothing of of getting in a car and, and and driving halfway across the country to go see to go see something or see it and a natural attraction or to go see family or something whereas that was a that didn't happen in other parts of the world so we were so unique all right and our vehicles and that and and gasoline was cheap and that's all we did we weren't worried about that whatsoever about that whatsoever and since we did not look to sell our cars in other parts of the world we could care less what happened in germany or italy or france or japan so wasn't we didn't care whatsoever right we're growing soybeans we don't care what we're not interested in how you grow carrots so anyway 
So what had happened was that they started to, I'll get, now that we have that, that time, well, that foundation, I should say, is that what I will do is I'll start to get, bring this into a little bit of uh, the, a better timeline. So what had happened was that the first thing, the first emission control device that went on engines uh, in North America was the EGR valve, and that came out around 1973, almost across the board. 1972, Buicks had it, all right? And uh, and even if you go a little bit backwards from that, there was what they call a air pump, and that's the, and, and, even, and people thought it said air, lowercase a, I R. There was up. It was an acronym. It was uppercase A, uppercase I, uppercase R, and that was a, it. Was a pump and air a pump, a, a, a pump that moved oxygen. We'll say I'll take it instead of even though it's moving air. And what it did, it put it into the exhaust manifold, and that was called air injection reaction. And it was a very early emission control thing. If you want to even go back further than that, the PCV valve was the first emission control. All right, but uh, positive crankcase ventilation, which replaced a road draft tube. But the air injection reaction system, the air pump, and it pumped into the exhaust manifold. And the purpose of the air pump was it was discovered that if they over-oxygenate, put a lot of oxygen in there into the exhaust manifold, is that 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 it will negate, I'll say negate because I don't want to say burn up because some people think that there's combustion in there and there really, there wasn't, but it'll negate and dilute the exhaust that's coming out of the tailpipe, specifically the carbon monoxide, which is partially burned fuel and, and hydrocarbons, which is unburned fuel. And then the next thing that came up and was the EGR valve, which stands for exhaust gas recirculation and is still used today specifically on diesels and that was putting exhaust gas back into the cylinder as a filler taking the place of a combustible mixture and that was to control an emission called oxides of nitrogen not nitrous oxide like a drag race motor uses it was oxides of nitrogen and nox n capital n capital o subscript x x identifying that an unknown or number of molecules in the chemical equation and oxides of nitrogen are are, are produced on for, through pressure heat and exposure time i went through this many times before and it falls under the zeldovich equation and what was found is that if you diluted this took took put exhaust gas and even though it's hot right and you took place of combustible mixture it acted like filler like you put water in the tank of a sprayer it's a carrier right and it would have less combustible mixture in the bore and then it would lower the exhaust the oxides of nitrogen production in the way was lowering the oxides of nitrogen because the zeldovich equation has three components on it right pressure heat and exposure time is that it would reduce reduce the amount of heat to temperature so you're actually putting something hot in the cylinder but since it is quenching not i shouldn't say it's actually quenching not allowing more combustible mixture to come it's going to lower the oxides of nitrogen and then for then the next step that came up which is really wasn't an emission control but it was rooted in emission control was electronic ignition and gm came out with the hgi hgi is a brand name high energy ignition so people look at i you know i go to whatever a cruise night or a car show and they have a 
they have a Plymouth and they have a, got HEI. And that's not HEI, that's Chrysler Electronic Ignition. HEI was a brand name for the electronic ignition, and by far the best electronic ignition in the world was the Delco HEI. All right, and the reason why the industry all went to electronic ignition and got away from breaker points because whenever you put breaker points, when any engine has breaker points, in theory, the first time you start that engine, after you install those points, those points are starting to wear. I mean, albeit it may last 10,000 miles, but those points are starting to wear. So just like when you put a tire on a car or a tractor or on a lawnmower, the first time it hits the pavement, it is starting to wear. All right, so there is so you may not be able to quantify the amount of wear, but it's starting to wear. So what basically had happened is that the car companies around the world knew that the government was going to set a standard, and they were going to set a standard that they had to. A few years out from then, they had to. The car companies had to. I'll use the word guarantee or certify that the engine was going to stay clean for this length of time. So that's basically, in essence, so they knew that the degradation of the breaker points and the wear of the breaker points were going to change things, and so they went to electronic ignition, All right? But still, we had a carburetor. It was very simple. So you maybe had, so in 1975, then in 1975, so 73, more or less, the industry went to electronic, electronic ignition. Uh, late 60s, early 70s, late 60s in California. An air pump, air injection reaction, that's what it stood for, AIR. Went to electronic ignition, went to EGR around 1973, and uh, exhaust gas recirculation, all right, so control oxides of nitrogen. Then in 1975 was the big step, and we went to catalytic converters. And the, catalyst, and the word catalyst means, if you look up the word catalyst, it's something that can control that could speed up a chemical reaction or I'll say alter a chemical reaction but basically speed up a chemical reaction create a chemical reaction some definition say without itself becoming consumed so the catalytic converter is was the early catalytic converters were had precious metals in them and when the when the exhaust gas reacted with those precious metals, it was a catalyst. It's, it created a reaction, but did not get consumed. So, like a candle creates light, but gets consumed, right? Because the wax melts down and the wick melts down. So that cannot be fall under the guise of a catalyst. All right, it's not a modifying a chemical reaction without itself becoming consumed, and it would take the it would take the a carbon monoxide and the hydrocarbons and convert them to. Uh, CO2 in the early age, say what's in what's in your soda, what gives you the f- f- fizzles, fizzies in your soda, All right? So, and the catalytic converter required unleaded fuel. So that was so for July of 1974, in anticipation of the 1975 ca- cars coming out, certain geographic areas in the country, based upon population, had to start to stock gas stations by law. Federal law had to start to mandate an, an inventory unleaded fuel. So much to their chagrin, because you had a guy with a small mom and pop gas station, and he has to put an unleaded fuel now. And in, in July of 1974, there were no cars on the road that wanted unleaded fuel. And if you look back even prior to that, Amoco used to have and. Uh, the, their what their clear gas or my uncle used to call uncle christie's called white gas 
which is actually was an unleaded fuel back then. If it was 100% unleaded, I don't know, maybe it had 2 or 3% when I was a little kid, but that was a, these were called clear gas or white gas. I don't know what they call it, white for. But anyway, and then the catalytic converter came out in most engines for 1975 and required. So we, we had this stair-step approach all right, so every couple of years, what happened when you opened the hood on a new car or a new pickup truck, you had this, we had, first you had an air pump, then you had an EGR valve, then you had electronic ignition, and now you had a catalytic converter. And then eventually what had happened is that what the, you know, what the, what the federal government did, the EPA did, and this, and this, and this applied to anybody who wanted to sell a car in the United States. All right, is that they had a program that they rolled out and they said, okay, by 1981, you have to meet these standards. By 1983, you have to meet these standards. So, like I said, they didn't come to the companies and say, well, okay, fine, overnight, you got to meet these standards. So, the companies knew what was going on. I remember going up to uh, the Delco school with Mr. Richard Hip up in Terrytown and taking a complete, an old, a, a complete class all day long, eight hours on HGI ignition. I remember we saw a movie, they used to have the reel-to-reel movies back then, it was fantastic, of uh, explaining, and it was by General Motors, by Delco, and they had, it was a, a 70 Chevy on the test grounds, on the, on the test track in Milford, Michigan, with HGI ignition in it. So that was five years before it came out. So it probably started in 69. So like I said, the, the, these engineering processes, the, the the government does work well with that. They don't throw it on overnight. Maybe today they do. Hey, we're shutting down the, we're shutting down the country. We're shutting down the world because of COVID. But anyway, but back then it was a little bit different. So now we had, so and, and then because of the, because of the standards increased, increase meaning stricter and then we start then the government start to put on these fuel economy standards the industry collectively recognized that they have to manage the fuel and the timing in an engine much better or more precisely i should say not much better more precisely than they were doing with mechanical weight in the distributor and a traditional carburetor so what they did is they came out with the first engine management systems and for the most part that was around that was 1981 you'd made it had some california cars in 1980 that had little stricter standards but for the most part it was 1981 so if you looked at any 1981 domestic car is that it had a what they called a feedback carburetor, a carburetor that was controlled by a computer and was able to control. The whole carburetor wasn't, still worked on the basics of, of a carburetor, which is a pressure differential, but it had some means to alter the air-fuel ratio. And why you wanted to alter the air-fuel ratio was because of the catalytic converter. A catalytic converter has the highest level of efficiency, which they call conversion process, that we're converting the CO and HC into a benign emission, a, 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 a benign exhaust, all right, at 14.7 to 1, which is stoichiometric mixture. So the chemical composition of unleaded fuel was designed to have us, when they blended unleaded fuel, when they designed the fuel for that, 1975 to have a stoichiometric mixture which is the highest level of of chemical conversion at 14.7 to 1 if you're a drag racer you're a tractor pull guy you're a dirt track guy you buy a race gas they're going to tell you right in a label what the stoichiometric mixture is 
for that fuel. So that is the most efficient range. We'll leave it at that. All right. So this all came together, and what happened is that the, the conversion process of a catalytic converter ramps off dramatically when it, if the mixture goes leaner than 14.7 or richer than 14.7. So what happened was that at that particular point for 1981, the car manufacturers had to guarantee that the emissions on the vehicles they were selling would stay clean or within standards, I should say, not stay clean, for five years or 50,000 miles. So everyone recognized that that we had to have some sort of fuel control. So General Motors had their, their system, Ford had their system, all right? Uh, whoever had a system like that, uh, Chrysler, what have you, needed to control the mixture. And so, at, and this mixture was controlled at idle and par throttle cruise. So if you put it to the floor to, to pull an Airstream trailer up a long, a long grade with your Oldsmobile custom cruiser, all right, then the fact of the matter is it would still have the air-fuel ratio that was required to meet those conditions of the load. But at par throttle, light load, cruise, and idle, it would be kept at stoichiometric. And then the next transition from that was from to go from a feedback carburetor to what is called throttle body injection. So throttle body injection is a hybrid carburetor fuel injection system. And what it did, it used a fuel injector, used an engine controller to control it, right? Its basis was to control the air-fuel ratio, but instead of using metering rods in a carburetor to control that, right it was going to use a fuel injector but what the but it was not a port fuel injection system now keep in mind that a port fuel injection system has an injector for each cylinder and then also is spraying in the intake port of the engine that is seeing a high velocity and a vacuum what is happening is the throttle body injector is spraying above the throttle plate. So it's half carburetor here, has the throttle plate of a carburetor, but has an injector on top. So the important element there is that the port, the throttle body injection system is spraying in atmosphere. So the discharge of the fuel from the pintle of the injector is in atmosphere. And then the pressure differential from the Venturi inside the throttle body is what's pulling it in so it's actually so you like it would be like you taking a garden hose and putting it on a spray pattern instead of a stream and holding it above something so that was the next transition and the reason why they went to that is that the car a carburetor anybody's carburetor was too slow to respond to changes because they introduced back in 1981 with these feedback systems to protect the catalytic converter an oxygen sensor to monitor the air fuel ratio so even though the oxygen sensor was saying okay we're too rich but there was too many events and there was too much fuel in transition with a carburetor for it to be able to be reactive in time quick reaction time to correct the mission the the, the mixture because at steady state the carburetor was fine but a transition throttle transition low transition is that it was four or five or six events of the crankshaft firing cycles before it could start to correct and then because it was sending the fuel in transit so it had a very 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 long lead or lag time the throttle body injection was able to con- was able to 
to respond quicker, but still had that lag time of the fuel and air being mixed together, which we call charge, and transporting that through the manifold into the cylinder. Whereas the next step up from that was port injection, where the fuel injector is positioned about 100 millimeters from the intake valve at the juncture of the intake manifold and this intake port in the cylinder, so it was very quickly to respond. Then at the same time, what basically happened was that they integrated not just fuel control but timing control from 1981 on up when they started to do the feedback carburetors then to the throttle by injection is that so they took the mechanical weights in the vacuum advance out of the distributor and they had yes they had hei or they had electronic ignition i should say because gm was hei i'm correcting myself but now the advance curve was was completely well, I don't want to say it was a microprocessor controlled by the engine management system, the ECU, the engine control unit. So the timing curve was no longer mechanical with advanced weights and a vacuum advanced unit and a breaker plate. So it was done electronically through the ignition module. So it was a more complex ignition module. And the position of the distributor still came into play because that was that was that was the base timing. And then the advance curve after that was electronic. And the reason why they did that is that they because remember, we want to do everything we can to clean up the combustion event. So now we we have an engineering what they call degrees of freedom, as I said of maybe 15, 20 minutes ago, is that whereas the the, the centrifugal or centrifugal, however you want to say and make the mechanical advance and the vacuum advance the vacuum advance was key towards engine load vacuum and the centrifugal advance was was key towards rpm so basically in essence if you had it in first gear at 3000 rpm or had it in fourth gear at your foot to the floor at 3000 rpm trying to climb the hill it had the same advance curve so just like you say a broken clock tells the right time twice a day right well the thing is that we had the same advance curve so what was recognized because once you start to look at the emissions output of an engine just like a farmer will look at yield when you look at yield on a crop and you start to work backwards you find out where the yield is disappearing and that's and what would happen is that as you start to look at emissions and you look at so the dynamics was all this is about is controlling what's happening in the combustion chamber and then then uh you look at that and you say well okay and you know the centrifugal advance because at 3000 rpm is going to be the same regardless of the load on the engine so so basically if you had no load on the engine you pull and you revved it up to 3000 rpm you'd have the same amount of timing as 3000 rpm in first year holding a year longer fourth year or third year whatever top gear was climbing a climbing a mountain and your foot matted to the floor would be the same amount of advance so by putting electronic controls and we were able to have what they call degrees of freedom as i said and we say no 3000 rpm in in top gear pulling this trailer or pulling this this this, this this uh, gooseneck trailer with cattle in it up the mountain we need a different timing curve we need a different rate of advance how much total timing the engine has than 3000 rpm in neutral or or 3000 rpm pulling the gears out and just and so so that all comes into play and then eventually what happened is the industry went to port fuel injection and 
and from port fuel injection then they went they kind of stayed there for a while and then they went to what's called distributorless ignition so there's no distributor whatsoever all right that that's completely electronic use the cam and crank sensor in most instances and then they went to coil and plug ignition and then they went to what is called it was no longer called an ecm engine control module now it was called a pcm powertrain control module because what it did is encompass the transmission into the same controller so the transmission the shifting of the transmission electronic automatic or like in my fiesta like a dual clutch as i said in the beginning if it had a lockup torque converter so this all came into play and it was this transition and what basically if you were and i was very very blessed as i said in the show a couple of weeks ago because i was able to be part of this transition i was very i was very well versed on carburetors and ignition because i studied it and realized that that was the key to if you're a hot rodder right carburetors and ignition and then i went to school and learned about hei or i went to school and learned about electronic ignition first gm hei and then I learned about feedback carburetors, feedback systems, all right? A feedback, meaning it's a PID loop, proportional integral derivative. It's able to change something. It's monitoring something and change the timing and the fuel, the fuel, air fuel ratio. Then, so I had this transition. And so what is very hard, if you get a younger person in the field today, they don't have this transition and none of the schools are teaching it. So if you go to even the best school today, they're just, they're not teach they're, they're not teaching that, all right? They're not teaching. I'm not saying you have to go back to the Model T and the Magneto, all right? But they're not teaching this transition. Not even, and and I mean this podcast right now, I'm an hour and four minutes into this, and the first twenty minutes I wasted talking about garb, well, be my Fiesta and other stuff, right? So you figure if you take that away, I'm about forty-five minutes into it. My problem with the education system that is no transfer of knowledge. You're taking a young person, all right, that was never exposed to this, and you mean to tell me if you're going to a trade school, you're going to a high school, you're going to an F FFA program? I was called FAA, uh, FFA program you know you can't spend the day if the student's going to be there for 180 days you can't spend spend the day telling them the history of where we were how we got to here as an engine as an engine management system as a controller no 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 they want to go oh you plug the computer and the computer says change this change that and that's basically it and that's what frustrates me and that's why a farmer's contacting me and the guys have problems and they can't get them fixed even though they're calling the dealer because nobody's teaching the younger people this all right and the thing is that they and and probably somebody who's 40 years old and 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 younger if they were not passionate about it like i said in my show a couple weeks ago that to find their voice and wanted to go backwards all right i don't mean that they're foundational like i said you don't have to be an expert on foundationally where you're coming from is that they have no idea and what basically happens so you're throwing a person under the hood of a newer vehicle they really have no idea what the heck is going on they don't know how an engine runs they don't know why they don't know anything and i'm not going to paint everybody with the same brush but you know i i was involved with schools i was involved with the university of northwest ohio for years uh and uh 
And the thing basically was is that you go there today, they're not teaching this. You go to UTI, they're not teaching. You go to, I don't care what schools, uh, automotive machinist school, they're not teaching this. All right? And there's no reason for, for like I'm saying, I'm repeating it, that if you have, I have whatever, 45 minutes, an hour, hour and 20 minutes to try to expose you to something. If you got 180 days to expose a student to something, you can't spend five hours or four hours or three hours explaining to them why we're here, what how we got here. All right, so they have the foundation. All right, and uh, crazy. So anyway, and then what was actually even worse was for the diesel guys, the guys working on semis, the guys working on farm equipment, because because we had let's say from in the automobile industry we'll go back from let's say 1973 with a egr valve forget about the air injection reaction system all right because most of the people took the belt off of it anyway egr valve and then up until let's say 1988 or so 19 let's say 90 for easy arithmetic so from 72 to 1990 which is eight, which is what that's eight is eight is uh that's 80 then so 18 years we had 18 let's say basically 20 years of this slow evolutionary change whereas the diesel community did not have that specifically with the farm equipment construction equipment over the road trucks i'm not talking about you know light duty pickup truck diesels that all four came out with the power stroke which used a huey type of injector or um, but these guys one day they opened up the hood on the well the, the bonnet or whatever they call on a combine right there and there was a pump line nozzle deal a pump line nozzle diesel there or they had a freight liner or a kenworth or whatever it was a john Deere, and then they looked and all of a sudden what rolled into the dealership off the transport truck had electronics on it they had no transition they and it made it very very hard for them and that's why i am even talking about this because the dynamics of a diesel engine control system are a lot yet they don't have spark advanced they don't have hei ignition or electronic ignition but the dynamics and the and the the fundamentals of it are the same as it was in the gasoline side of it so but the problem was that those poor guys were thrown to the wolves in far as my as far as i'm concerned thrown to the wolves because they didn't have that they did not have the ability to have that transition now granted because you know me i'm a straight shooter is that 95 percent of the people in the auto industry never took advantage of of the uh of the education or the the opportunity to learn or understand what's going on when i worked in the buick dealer reese buick and was going to college out in Mineola, long island all right the thing is that i as a young guy i came in there within a couple of months i did all the drivability problems and everything got dirty because all the mechanics there that were older than i was they weren't terribly older but they were older than i was they were interested in pounding out brake jobs and pardon my language half-ass tune-ups change the spark plugs throw an air filter and let it go they were not interested in feedback carburetors getting to to run perfectly fuel injection throttle body injection they were interested in all the quick stuff in and out in and out in and out in and out all right and and they couldn't honestly they could not fix their own cars if they bought a new car and none of them bought new cars because they didn't know how to fix them 
right? And even with the old cars, if they had a, a problem with a carburetor, they didn't understand what was going on. They used to come over to me, and this this one guy I told you about him before, Billy Biscotti, he's probably passed away. God bless, God rest his soul. But he he used to curse me. He used to call me to college something that was not a nice word. And then when he didn't, when he was doing a brake job or an alignment. And then when he had a problem with a carburetor or a problem with his own carburetor, he had a, a boat. He used to be go fishing out in Long Island for tuna. And uh, these guys used to make a ton of money fishing for tuna. The Japanese used to be at the docks, they used to say, buying the tuna from him. All right, so anyway, he had a boat, a little, I don't know what size it was, maybe 24 foot long, I never saw it. And he had a Buick motor in it. <laughs> right. So he had a 350 Buick motor in it. And uh, but so whenever he had a problem, so hey, sweetheart, sweetheart, he used to call me sweetheart, coming over to my 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 rack. We used to call it a rack or lift in the in the dealership there. Put his arm around me. <laughs> hey, sweetheart, sweetheart, and I was like only two years older than his son. And sweetheart, sweetheart, you know I got a problem with the boat with the carburetor. You know, I don't know what it is. They knew what they knew what to do is buy, they would go and buy a rebuilt carburetor and put it on there. And they didn't even know how to adjust it. So anyway, for the most part, I can't paint everybody with the same brush, but for the most part. So I said, Oh, what's the matter? And it was a Rochester two G, which has been around since God. I mean, since methuselah all right so i said to him billy pull it off give it to me tell me what it's doing and i'll do it at lunchtime for you or after after work tomorrow oh thank you sweetheart thank you sweetheart so the fact of the matter is as i get ready to close over here is that this was a transition and it was a building block approach and just like if you go and don't have the foundation laid properly on the building or if you're farming don't have good seed to soil contact all the bets are off right and you need to have this foundation that's why i felt it was so important for you to for me to represent this to you in basic simplistic terms why we got there how we got there all right and if you look at it that everybody's engine management system that the circuit board may be a little bit different their algorithms may be different is controlling the same thing so what we're doing is we're and now it's a pcm powertrain control module of course we're controlling the transmission functions and other functions with it but basically in essence when you look at a, a tier four diesel that has scr has ejr right has a doc has a dpf alphabet soup right you're con- trying to clean up what you could not clean up in the combustion chamber and that's what any emission control device is and the cleaner you could get in the combustion chamber the less you have to rely on that and that's why i keep you know pounding in to ad nauseum to the guys with the diesels to additize your fuel because if you additize your fuel all right and you put in the additives all right to make the fuel a better fuel no disrespect to anybody who's blending fuel but that fuel goes through a lot of different tanks and everything from the refinery to your farm tractor your combine or your semi if you could put make that fuel a better fuel by added adding these putting these additives in then you're going to inherently clean up the combustion event and the people don't want to and you know i had, I had a, oh, I listened to the, to the radio show from texas i forgot his name. i actually if i heard his name i remember please forgive me and uh the thing is that he listened to me 
all right? He's not the only one who did. All right, but he listened to me. He contacted me the other day. He's got a, a 2016 F-250 or 350 with the power stroke in it and the, the 200,000 miles on it. He says, I'm advertising my fuel. I listened to what you said. He goes, I'm getting at least two and a half miles, two miles per gallon better consistently, consistently. The truck runs better, smoother, quieter, and more powerful. And I asked him, are you getting less regens? And he says, I think I am. He says, but I didn't make a mental note of it. I made a mental note of the fuel economy, but I will make a mental note of it. If you clean up what's happening in the combustion chamber then you're going to have less regenerations so it's just like if you if you don't have the weeds grow in the field you don't have to go in and take care of them so basically you could look at on a diesel you could look at that combustion event and the doc diesel oxidation catalyst dpf diesel particulate filter and scr system selective catalytic reductions scr is to control along with the e-jars to control oxides of nitrogen if you have a more efficient combustion event and you are not creating as much oxides of nitrogen then you're not going to be using as much dp uh, um, d um, def all these acronyms i uh, even get messed up with def right same things happening if you have a very efficient or a more efficient combustion event if you're trying to just like a high yield farmer is trying to pull the maximum yield out of that seed right if you could pull the maximum efficiency from that combustion event from that combustion chamber design and that engine you're not going to be able to surpass that all right but you're going to be able to pull that out in the max then you're going to have less regen cycles because you're not making the particulates it's as simple as that right you put you have good you put a pre-emerge down have good crop canopy the field is clean you don't put a pre-emerge down have lousy crop canopy all right then the weeds take over it's no more complicated than that all right so the thing is that but these but it's i think it's very important or i know it's very important i always say the word think but doesn't give enough credence to my passion for it for the people on both sides of the aisle the gasoline and the diesel side of the aisle to understand how we got to here and it's based upon emissions and it's based upon fuel economy all right and the thing is that as we move forward and these engines over the past 10 or 15 years are being redesigned that's what's giving them the power that's what's giving the fuel economy the engine control system is not just like the high yield farmer can't put more yield in the seed he could only extract what's already what god put in that seed he could only extract it and let it and let it come to fruition so as we move forward we have these engines that are now designed with better combustion chambers we have them designed with more efficient fuel systems we have designed with more efficient turbochargers air and and, and whether it is gasoline or diesel all right but on the same token the federal government around the world have have tightened up the emission standards so what we've done is what the industry has done is add more what they call degrees of freedom more control circuits so now it's a beautiful balancing act and i'm not saying i don't love a pump line nozzle diesel i'm not saying i don't love a old uh, breaker point engine with with, with a carburetor love them to death right they're fantastic the flip side of all right so the reality of it if you have pro you have con all right with the old engines the the pro side the 
all right the pro of those engines simplistic nothing very little to go wrong run forever very 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 tolerant of of abuse of a lack of maintenance the negative of those engines were they were dirtier all right and they didn't get the fuel economy and they didn't make the power all right the new engines gasoline and diesel the pro the pro side of the column is that they're very fuel efficient they're extremely clean they make a ton of power that's the that's the pro the con side of it is that they have a lot to potentially go wrong and they are very intolerant of a lack of maintenance and abuse all right so the thing basically now the word is abuse not use all right use they're not they're to- very tolerant of use they're not tolerant they're intolerant of abuse whereas you take an older gasoline engine older diesel all right whatever the thermostat sticks and you get it you cook a thing you let it cool off you put a thermostat in it's fine fill it up with coolant it's fine you take these new engines with all these different metals in it this lightweight stuff it does it's not it can't take that it's not going to take somebody it's not going to tolerate bad oil changes it's not going to tolerate dirty fuel i don't mean dirty fuel with the fuel that fuel that burns dirty either on the gas or diesel side and then what's happening is that so it's now it's a collective event as i get ready to close whereas before back in 1974-75 the industry collectively uh, the car industry because no one cared about diesels back then the car industry uh i mean no one cared the government didn't care about there was no standards the car industry look to have control circuits because they didn't want to redesign the engines and then as they then they they modified the control circuits and made them more complex and once they ran out of room with the control circuits what they basically did is remod they modified the engines all right they tw- they redesigned the engines the combustion chamber camshaft variable cam time everything and then also the control circuits were advanced and just like if you were to talk to a farmer back 40 years ago and 50 years ago whatever and say in a competition plot we're going to have 600 bushels of corn he would say you he wouldn't say you're smoking dope back then he'd say you're drunk buddy you're hitting the bottle impossible well we have competition plots making five six hundred bushels of corn all right is there a lot more inputs is there a lot more babysitting is there a lot more going on of course but the guy who's going four or five hundred bushels of corn or 350 bushels of corn per acre over his farm average is doing a lot more to it and paying a lot more attention just like the engine management system is than the than the guy who's making a hundred bushels per acre so it's no more complex than that but i felt it was very important i'm repeating it once again for you as people in the industry to understand how we got here and if you have somebody who is a diesel mechanic let them listen to this because the dynamics of oxides of nitrogen all right uh co and hc the combustion event and the timing of the injection pulse whereas in the gas engine we time the spark on the diesel we time injection pulse are basically so parallel that it makes a lot of sense so i want to thank you so much for tuning in and for listening and i want you to know that the hot rod farmer is born for you the american farmer and rancher and my beloved beloved america you have a blessed day and be well